Hello, everyone. Let me just say a word of prayer together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we can come together to learn from your word. May your spirit uh, break down barriers in our hearts as we come humbly before you to receive your word. And we ask for uh, transformation in our hearts so that we can become more and more like Jesus. Bless our time together, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, over the next couple of weeks, we are looking at spiritual formation. And we're talking about spiritual formation is about becoming more like Jesus, becoming more like Christ. And whatever we do at church, whether it's Bible study, whether we are serving the Lord, whether we are using our gifts, whether we are leading song, whatever we do in our spiritual life, it must contribute in some sense towards becoming more like Jesus. Uh, whether it's BSF, KYB, Cell Group Bible Study, all must contribute in a sense for us to become more and more Christ-like. It may be slow, it may be a long process, but it must contribute to that end in becoming more and more like Christ. Believing that as we become more and more like Christ, we truly uh, live the kind of life that Jesus wants us to live. And that is what many people work towards becoming happy in the sense. Uh, Pascal, the 17th century uh, genius, physicist and religious thinker, who has been described as one of the great minds of the Western intellectual history, he once made this telling assessment of the subject of happiness. He said, all men seek happiness. This is without exceptions. Whatever different means they use, they all tend towards this end. Some go to war, others avoid it, but all have the same desire in view. The human will, the human will never take the least step but towards this object. It is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. So whatever we do, we tend to edge towards wanting to be happy, however we, we find happiness is. And so here, we're going to unpack the Beatitudes as the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount over the next couple of weeks to work towards spiritual formation, towards spiritual growth of what Jesus says. And there are eight Beatitudes here. We've we divided it into two sections of it. The first four is inward pathway. We need to have this attitude, these four dispositions in order for spiritual formation to commence, to take place. And then we'll look at this, the next four Beatitudes, which is the outward pathway. What kind of impact when you have this four, the first four disposition attitude of this Beatitudes and what it will impact us outwardly in many sense. So there are eight Beatitudes mentioned here in uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. And I'm going, I'm going to tackle on the first one. And each of the eight Beatitudes opens with the word blessed. And so it is essential that we understand here in the beginning what this word means because it bears on everything that will be said throughout the Beatitudes. 
What does it mean to be blessed? Uh, some translation call it happy. You know, happy are the poor. Happy are those who mourn. Uh, happy are the meek. Uh, happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. But it is more than just happy. Because the Greek word for blessed used in the Beatitudes is makarios. Makarios, uh, however you want to pronounce it. Uh, and it, it has various meaning to it. In ancient Greek times, Makarios referred to the gods. The blessed ones were the gods. They had achieved a kind of state of happiness and contentment in life that was beyond all cares, labors, and even death. So the blessed ones were beings who live in some other world away from the cares and problems and worries of ordinary people. So to, to, to be blessed, you had to be a god. So the word blessed was used in that kind of context. It needed to be like, a, like belong to gods. And Makarios also took on the second meaning. It referred to the dead. The blessed ones were humans who through death had reached the other worlds of the gods. They were now beyond the cares and problems and worries of earthly life. And so to be blessed, you had to be dead. And this is the origin of the different saints' day that we come all saints' day. They are remembered on the dates of their death. So all saints' days was for all the people who had died in the faith, whose names we didn't know. And so it belongs to the dead. Right? they almost gone to the, another world. So they are blessed. They are Makarios. And then Makarios also came to refer to the elite the upper class of society, the wealthy people, uh, refer to people whose riches and powers put them above the normal cares and problems and worries of the lesser folks who constantly struggle and worry and labor in life. Although I don't quite agree that because you're rich and you're powerful, you have everything you want, means you have, uh, you're blessed and you have no problem. In fact, I think you have more problems. Uh, so that was being kept used in that context as well. But when the words makarios was used in the uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament, which we call Septuagint, it took on another meaning. It referred to the results of right living or righteousness. So if you live right, you live rightly, if you live righteously, then you were blessed. So being blessed meant you receive early material things, a good wife, many children, abundant crops, riches, honor, wisdom, beauty, good health, etc. So a blessed person had more things and better things than an ordinary person. So to be blessed, you had to have big and beautiful things. And so that was the context of what Makarios, blessed, are being used. So Matthew uses this word in a totally different way. It is not the elite who are blessed. It is not the rich. It is not the powerful who are blessed. It is not the high and mighty who are blessed. It is not the people in huge uh, mansions or expensive penthouses who are blessed. Rather, Jesus pronounces God's blessings on the lowly, the poor, the hungry, the thirsty, the meek, the mourning. So throughout the history of the, this word, it had always been the other people who are considered blessed. 
the rich, the filled up, the powerful. But Jesus turns it upside down. The elite in God's kingdom, the blessed ones in God's kingdom are those who are at the bottom of the heap of humanity. So the Greek word for blessed conveys this idea of happiness, but it means much more than that. Because happiness is, is a subjective state and a feeling. It depends very much on circumstances and situations. Uh, people may be happy knowing that uh, now we are back to normal and suddenly there's a lockdown again and we are unhappy. So, so happiness tends to depend very much on, on the situation and the environment around us. So when Jesus used the word blessed, it is not declaring how people feel. Rather, he is actually making an objective statement about what God thinks of them. And therefore, the word used by Jesus means blessed by God or to be approved by God or to find approval by God. So meaning to say, Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for example. He's saying that you are approved by me. You bring a smile to my face. The heavens, as Max Lucado in, in writing a book on the Beatitudes, he entitled it, The Applause of Heaven. That means to say that when you are poor in spirit, heaven's applause. You bring a smile to God's face. God signed His approval on you when you are poor in spirit. You bring a smile to God's face when you mourn. You are blessed. The heavens applause when you are meek. So it's a, it's a pronouncement uh, used by Jesus as an objective sin. Blessedness indicates the smile of God, the applause of heaven. So it's not subjective, but it's a pronouncement by God. Say, when you adopt this attitude, you are blessed. You bring a smile to my face. You have my approval. So, so that's the meaning of the word blessed. It's a pronouncement by God. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What does poor in spirit mean? Let me tell you what poverty of spirit is not. It is not financial destitution. It's not asking you to be poor. That You have got as approval if you are materially poor. No, it is not. It is not the conviction that one is of no value whatsoever. You know, poor little boy kind of way of uh, talking about poor in spirit. No, it's, it does not mean the conviction that one is of no value. It does not mean the absence of self-worth or, or in theological term, like ontologically insignificant. It does not require that we become ourselves to be zeros, you know. Such an attitude is simply not scriptural. For Christ's death on our, on our behalf teaches us that we are of great value because we were bought with a price. It also does not mean shyness. Many people who are naturally shy and introverted are extremely proud. And many very loud people are not arrogant at all. So being poor in spirit does not mean shyness. And being poor in spirit does not mean that you have no spiritual backbone or lacking in vitality and courage or, or being gutless. And certainly, poor in spirit 
does not refer to showy humility. You know, some people, by wanting to project themselves to be humble, in essence, is it bringing across their arrogance in some sense by keep telling people that I'm nobody, I'm nothing. But in reality, you are trying to tell people that how humble you are in a sense. So poverty of spirit or poor in the spirit does not mean all those things. The word poor, I need to further explain to you. The word poor, I mean, in our English word can mean something. I can, some of us may be poor. Uh, we may not, again, it's very relative in a sense. Uh, but if we measure in terms of material-wise, you may say you are poor. Therefore, I have to work extra work. I will take on few shifts in that sense so as to support my family and all that. But the word poor here is not just that definition. It means much deeper than that. It, it was it used, the word poor, poor here, it means someone who is ashamed, who wretchedly, Bags for money or for worth. It means to live beggarly. It simply describes someone who cannot survive of themselves, someone who cannot be self-sufficient, someone who does not simply ask, does not work, but he literally begs outside of himself for worth, for money, for wealth. So this is what the New Testament word means here. It could be literally translated as beggarly poor. So it's not just that you're poor and you can work hard and become rich. You can't. You can't at all. Blessed are the beggarly poor, for they shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. So if you take the meaning of the word and you combine the word in spirit, poverty in spirit, poor in spirit, takes on new meaning. It means sense of powerlessness, sense of spiritual bankruptcy. You have a sense of helplessness before God. There's nothing you can do about it. There's this sense, you just sense that you're powerless, you sense that spiritually you're bankrupt, you're just sense that you're completely helpless before God. There's this sense of personal unworthiness before God. You have this sense that if there, if there is to be joy or usefulness, it will have to be all of God and all of grace. So to be poor in spirit means that we feel our total, complete, absolutely spiritual poverty before God and our complete, utter dependence upon him, upon him. And so this poverty of spirit must be our attitude towards ourselves. We must see that we can do nothing to commend ourselves to God. It must become clear to us that apart from Christ, we are spiritually, spiritually destitute. We may be well-educated, but we are spiritually ignorant. We may be financially secure, but we are spiritual bankrupt. Spiritually bankrupt. We may be the president of a corporation, but we, without Christ, we are on the spiritual unemployment line. So to be poor in spirit is to recognize that without Christ, we can do nothing. 
It is to recognize that without Christ, we are nothing. It is to come before God with empty hands, humble hearts, seeking only to receive from Him. And Max Lucado has a beautiful way of expressing this. He says, God does not save us because of what we have done. Only a puny God could be bought with money. Only an egotistical God could be impressed with our pains. Only a temperamental God could be satisfied by our sacrifices. Only a heartless God would sell salvation to the highest bidders. And only a great God does for His children what they can't do for themselves. So Jesus begins by saying in the very first beatitude, as we march towards spiritual formation, there's a very fundamental attitude that we need to begin with. He, Jesus is saying there's a mountain you have to scale, there are heights you have to climb, there is a standard you must attain, but you are incapable of doing it. And the sooner you realize it, the sooner you'll be on the way to finding it. In other words, he's saying, to, saying, saying that you can't be filled until you're empty. You can't be worthwhile until you're worthless. So poverty of spirit means that. And Jesus is saying, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. God, you put a smile on God's face when you have that attitude, when you come before God. The heavens applause. God said, blessed are you when you come before Him with an empty hand. Say, Lord, I am powerless. I am spiritually bankrupt. I can't do anything. And God said, blessed are you. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. I want to give you three uh, things about why poverty of spirit is essential. Three things. The first thing is poverty of spirit is essential for knowing God's approval. As I already mentioned, Jesus pronounced by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. Poverty of spirit is essential for knowing God's approval. You want God's approval? You want to be blessed? God said, you want to put a smile on my face? You want the heavens to applause you? Then you come in the attitude, emptiness, poverty in spirit. I want to very quickly, now because of this uh, recording, we don't have a PowerPoint available. So I'm not, I'm not going to read to you the uh, reference. I'm just going to read to you the text itself. And there are nine characters that I combed through in the Bible. Maybe there are more, but instantly came to mind, there are nine characters in the Bible they exhibit this kind of poverty of spirit and God is so pleased with them when they come with that kind of attitude. Abraham, for example, in the context of pleading for Sodom, Abraham spoke up again. He said, Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes. Now, that is poor in spirit. And then we think about Jacob in the context of when he was preparing to meet Esau, uh, his brother, uh, he said, I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have become two groups. Poverty of spirits. I'm, I'm unworthy, Lord, of all the kindness and faithfulness you have sent to me. That displays 
poverty of spirit. And when I think of Moses, when God calls Moses to lead the people out of Egypt, Moses said, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And then he said again, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. That again display the poverty of spirit. And then when you think of Gideon, one of the judges in the book of Judges, when God chose Gideon again to deliver the Israelite, Gideon said, Lord, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh. And not only my clan is the weakest, and I am the least in my family. That's poverty of spirit. That is poor in spirit. And then you think of David, King David. Psalms 51, after he committed murder and adultery, he pleaded with God. He said, God, my sacrifice to you are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. That is the mark of poverty of spirit. And then elsewhere he said, who am I and what is my father, my family or my father's clan in Israel that I should become the king's son-in-law when he talked to Saul? Again, poverty of spirit. And then again he said, but who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you and we have given you only what comes from your hand. Poverty of spirit. Displaying that attributes. Solomon, he said, Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in my place of my father David, but I am only a little child and I do not know how to carry out my duties. Poverty of spirit, poor in spirit. Job, at the end of the book of Job, chapter 42, he said, My ears have heard of you, but now my ears, sorry, my my." my my ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. Poverty of spirit. Isaiah chapter 6, the famous verse. Come to Mission Man, we read about it. He said, Woe to me, I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips and I live among the people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Poverty of spirit displayed by Isaiah. Two more. Jeremiah. When God called Jeremiah, known as the weeping prophet, he said, Lord, I'm young. I do not know how to speak. I am only a child. God said, yeah, that is precisely the kind of attitude I want because you are blessed when you come before me with poverty of spirit. Jesus said, you bring a smile to my face. The last one I want to bring to you is John the Baptist. John the Baptist preparing the way for the Messiah to come. He said, He is the one who comes after me, the tongues of whose senders I am not worthy to untie. And then his famous words in John chapter 3, He must increase and I must decrease. Or He must become greater I must become less. Poverty of spirit. Those nine characters I briefly and quickly that I read to you display the poverty of spirit, the poor in spirit. So poverty of spirit is essential for knowing God's approval. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You have my approval. 
you bring a smile to my face. The heavens applause when you come before me with that kind of attitude. Number two, why poverty of spirit is essential? Because poverty of spirit is essential not just for God's approval, but for salvation. Without coming before God with poverty of spirit, there is no salvation for you. No one can come to Christ without poverty of spirit. All our works in the context of salvation can never, never gain God's approval. We can never achieve God's perfect standard. Ask yourself honestly, uh, whether it's your children or your spouse or even yourself, when you do some great thing, sometimes we can't even rise up to our own standard. Sometimes your children can't even rise up to your standard that you have set. How are we going to rise up to God's standard, which is perfection? Our standard, no matter how high, is still we are fallen creature and fallen being. Our standard fallen short of God's perfect standard. So no one can come to Christ without poverty of spirit. Poverty of spirit is essential for salvation. The first step to salvation is a plea for help, an acknowledgement of moral destitution, an admission of inward paucity, emptiness. Those who taste God's presence have declared spiritual bankruptcy and are aware of their own spiritual crisis. Their cupboards are bare, their pockets are empty, their options are gone, they have long since stopped demanding justice. They are pleading for mercy. They don't brag, but they beg. They ask God to do for them what they can't do without Him. And so the phrase, God helps those who help themselves, it may be correct just before your exams, but let me tell you, it's theologically incorrect because God helps those who can't help themselves in the context of salvation. So that phrase is, in the context of salvation, is incorrect uh, because God helps those who cannot help themselves. So they have seen how holy God is and how sinful they are and they have agreed that Jesus' statement, salvation is impossible. And so poverty of spirit is essential, not just only for God's approval, not just only for salvation. You need salvation and you need to come before God with that kind of attitude acknowledging before him that spiritually you're bankrupt you can't do it God I can't do it I, I, I need you I need you Lord and when you come in that attitude God said you have my approval blessed are you the heavens applause you are bringing a smile to my face I'm so glad you come before me that way because this is when my help can come in. Thirdly, this is where our direction is going down of this entire series, series and that is poverty of spirit is essential for spiritual formation. Poverty of spirit is essential for spiritual formation. True growth, becoming more Christ-like, is that is by coming before God and acknowledging that we can't do it on our own. Because 
Transformation is God's work at the end of the day. You may be, you may be discipline yourself for certain things, prayer, fasting, reading God's word, an act of service and all that. But ultimately, it's God's Holy Spirit that's at work in us, that is molding us, shaping us towards becoming more Christ-like. And poverty of spirit is foundational because a continual sense of spiritual need is the basis for ongoing spiritual blessings. You never grow out of it. The minute you grow out of it, meaning to say that you're going backwards. If you want to progress, it's a constant sense that is all of God and none of you. If you cross that path of thinking that you have arrived, you're actually going backwards. You're going backwards. A perpetual awareness of our spiritual insufficiency opens us to continually receiving spiritual riches. Poverty of spirit is something we never outgrow. In fact, the more spiritually mature we become, the more profound will be our sense of poverty. The greater you become more like Christ, you behold the face of Christ and the perfection, the more you recognize of your own sinfulness. And the more you need to come before God with that kind of attitude. You will never outgrow spiritual, uh, you, you can never outgrow that in a sense. The more spiritually mature you are, the more Christ-like you become, your standard becomes higher and higher and higher. And that is why people of this world can never recognize sin because their standard is far too low. Far too low. So blessed are those who realize that they have nothing within themselves to commend themselves to God. And Jesus said, when you come before that, yours is the kingdom of heaven. If you cannot come before God, that kind of attitude, then you cannot attain salvation. You cannot grow as a believer. Just like this classic story of the tax collector in Luke chapter 18. A beautiful, simple story that I preached many times before and I, and I titled the sermon, The Paradox of Pardon. Because everybody thinks that the, the outwardly righteous person eventually will be accepted by God. But shockingly, paradoxically, it was the tax collector who is known sinners who eventually found favor by God. And, and the telling tale of that story is the punchline in verse 14. Jesus said, I tell you, this man, referring to the tax collector, this man rather than the other, which is the tax collectors, which is the elite Pharisees, he said, this man went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And this is a, it's a, it's a telling story for us who God will accept. Are those people who come before God and say, Lord, I can't make it. The famous song, the hymns that I love to sing, I would have chose this for my closing song. It said, Nothing in my hand I bring. The title of the hymn, Rock of Ages. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked I come to thee for dress. Helpless I look to thee for grace. Foul I to the, foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior. Or I die. Those are the language of poverty of spirit. 
poor in spirit. We do not belong anywhere except along the side of the tax collectors in Jesus' parable, crying out with God's, crying out with downcast eyes and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Poverty of spirit. And those, this is the attitude that say, God says, blessed are you. To such and only to such, the kingdom of God is given. For God's rule which brings salvation is a gift as absolutely free as it is utterly undeserved. It has to be received with the dependent humility of a little child. And thus, right at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus contradicted all human judgments and all nationalistic expectations of the kingdom of God, that the kingdom is given to the poor, not the rich, the feeble, not the mighty, to little children humble enough to accept it, and not to soldiers who boast that they can obtain it by their own progress. And in Jesus' time, it was not a Pharisee who entered the kingdom, who though they were rich in marriage, that they thanked God for their attainment, but it was the poor in spirit. C.S. Lewis said, Prostitutes are in no danger of finding their present life so satisfactory that they cannot turn to God. The proud and the self-righteous are in that danger. So those are the three things I bring to you of this beautiful first point of the Beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That the poverty of spirit is essential for God's approval. It is essential for salvation. And it is absolutely essential for spiritual formation to take place, to becoming more Christ-like, is we need to come before God with that kind of attitude. There was a story uh, written by Keith Miller. Uh, he was a, a Christian. He was a businessman. And suddenly one day he felt overwhelmed with his sinful sinfulness. And, and so he, he kind of well-known businessman in his hometown he felt he's very afraid that if he confessed it to someone, it, it might get leaked out. So he arranged to meet a, a Catholic priest, which was hundreds of kilometers away from his home, to hear his confession. And so he made a long list of the character flaws, the sins, the people that he had wronged, the people that he has hurt. And he traveled to the priest's home city, hundreds of kilometers away. He sat in front of the priest. And then he began to read off the entire list that he took time to write down without even looking at the priest. And after he read through everything, held, he held his head in his hand, you know, falling out like on the table. He's waiting for, for some kind of uh, rebuild, uh, some kind of uh, response. And he, he dared not lift up his head, but it was silence. The priest didn't say anything at all. He kept waiting for the blow to fall, but nothing. And finally, he forced himself to raise his head and he saw that the priest was quiet. My God, the priest said, Keith, he said, the priest confessed to him, that's my list too. That is also my list. And in facing his poverty of spirit, 
he found not only God's grace, but he also found fellowship with those who has adopted this poverty of spirit in them. And then mutual, authentic, genuine Christian fellowship can emerge out of it when we recognize and acknowledge that we don't have it all. We don't have it all. And strangely, wonderfully, is when we face our poverty of spirit, our weaknesses, our character flaws, our sins, our selfishness, our envy, our pride, or the fears and struggles and doubts. Then Jesus said, well, yours is the kingdom of heaven. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. The door of grace opens up. God's love reaches out to embrace us and forgiveness came to us. We can begin the process of recovery. We can be we can, we can begin the process of spiritual formation. Sometimes I feel that isn't that what it means to be the church? Isn't it what we're supposed to be? A recovery group in some sense? In some sense, the church is supposed to be a reject shop. We're all the poor in spirit, in the spirit-directed process of recovery, moving towards Christ-likeness, beginning to become what God intends us to be. To live by grace means to acknowledge my whole life story, the light side and the dark side. And in admitting my shadow side, I learned who I am and what God's grace means. As Thomas Merton says, a saint is not someone who is good. A saint is someone who experiences the goodness of God. A saint is not someone who is good. A saint is someone who experiences the goodness of God. And that is when spiritual formation will take place. So long as we think we have it all, so long as we think that we need to project a front that we have it all, so long as we cannot confess our weaknesses, our struggle with one another, Spiritual formation cannot take place. It cannot take place. It cannot take place. And but when we have poverty of spirit, spiritual formation can begin to start in us. Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We have an inheritance. When you come before God in that attitude, Jesus said, you have salvation. Two more things I said and I'm done for tonight, this morning. Brendan Manning wrote a book called The Importance of Being Foolish. The Importance of Being Foolish. And he said this, he said, self-deception is the enemy of wholeness because it prevents us from seeing ourselves as we really are. It cover-ups our lack of growth in the spirit of the truthful one. And it keeps us from coming to terms with our real personalities. No choice was possible until the enemy was identified through a painful process. Self-deception had to be unmasked in all its absurdity if wholeness is to be experienced. 
Can I read the last line again? Self-deception had to be unmasked in all its absurdity if wholeness is to be experienced. And the self-deception is the enemy of wholeness. Is the deception that we have it all. We need to come before God as if we have it all. No! We must come before God and really know that we don't have it all. Then, wholeness can begin to experience in our life as we become more and more Christ-like. I'm convinced that without a God-level experience of our profound spiritual emptiness, it is not, not possible to encounter the living God. It is not possible to encounter the living God without a God-level experience of our profound spiritual emptiness in us. And we can encounter the living God. Finally, let me close with uh, some words from Henry Nouwen. He was quoting someone by the name of Isaac of Nineveh. He says this, Henry Nouwen quoted this person, say, He who knows his sin is much greater than he who makes someone rise from the dead. He who can really cry one hour about himself is greater than he who teaches the whole world. He who knows his own weakness is greater than he who sees the angels. And then Henry Nouwen offered a prayer based on these words. He said, these words, O Lord, are so true. I realize that my preoccupation with my sinful deeds is a way of avoiding a confrontation with my real sinfulness. An avoidance of confrontation with my real sinfulness means also an avoidance of a confrontation with your mercy. As long as I have not experienced your mercy, I know that I'm still running away from my real sin. Come, Lord, break through my compulsions, break through my anxieties, fears, and guilt feelings, and let me see my sin and your mercy. Amen. So this is a profound first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed. You bring happiness to God. You put a smile to God's face. You gain God's approval. The heavens applause you. God say, when you display that attitude of beggarly poor in spirit, acknowledging that spiritually you're bankrupt, spiritually that you're zero, it's either all of God or none. I cannot do anything. Jesus said, you have my approval when you come before me with that attitude because yours is the kingdom of heaven. May you come before God with that attitude this morning. May you resolute to begin this process of allowing God to do a tremendous, wonderful, renovating work in your heart as we begin this journey of spiritual formation. But it begins with coming before God with the first attitude, poverty of spirit. Let's pray, shall we? Father, thank you uh, for these beautiful words that you've given to us. We acknowledge that the self-made man is often a horrible example of unskilled labor. Please, Lord, uh, come and unmask us. Unmask our self-deception. 
because without being truthful to our own heart, uh, we cannot progress towards wholeness. We cannot move towards authentic living, Christ-like living, if we continue believing in our lives. So come, Lord, may your Holy Spirit unmask us, break us down, open our hearts, because we want to be more Christ-like. We want the Holy Spirit to begin His work in us and transform us and change us from within that we can become more real, more authentic. We will be less judgmental. We'll be more kind, generous to people as we journey life together. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. We bless you. We pray all this thing in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to invite you to sing now the closing song. All right, you guys.